This morning, the reading of God's law comes from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 21 to the end of the chapter. That's found on page 1029 of your pew Bibles. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon, and this famous sermon that he gives there. That Many believe that in Matthew, Matthew is presenting Christ as a second Moses. And here you would see on the Sermon on the Mount, he is not giving a new law, but he is, he is proclaiming the law yet again as the second Moses, as the first Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. Here's this Sermon on the Mount where the Lord comes and proclaims the, the truth of the law yet again. And we see how he, in many ways, furthers it in the people's understanding of what true obedience is. He brings it to the heart. Begin reading in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This ends the reading of God's law from Christ's own mouth in this Sermon on the Mount. We see there what is, what is hard for us to hear. When you read this law, you see how much we break it. You see how hard it is to fulfill and keep it, especially in those sections about how the law isn't just broken when it's performed and actually broken in deed, but in the thoughts, in the intentions of the heart, and in those desires that's where we especially see the, the, the way we are so sinful, that spread of sin. Christ reveals it. And we're called to try to keep this law to the best of our ability in obedience to him, but to know that we are unable to keep that law perfectly. This is the law that Christ fulfilled. And as he said, he hasn't come to abolish it. 
It's still in place. He hasn't come to take it away, but he has come to fulfill it, to fulfill it even in his own body, to fulfill it in his own ministry. And in that, we rejoice as well as learn the way we are to live before him. We'll respond to the reading of God's law by singing Psalm 40a. 40a, I waited long upon the Lord. We'll sing verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. 1, 2, 4, and 5 of 40a. It's a hard truth to hear and to even sing that the Lord takes no delight in our sacrifices. What is that meaning? Well, it means that mere religious performance is no delight to the Lord in that and that alone. Mere coming to church without a sincere heart, without a desire to worship or praise him is of no benefit is of no blessing to the Lord. Mere service to his law is nothing if it doesn't stems from our very soul and from our very heart. Otherwise, we are doing nothing before the Lord but empty deeds and works that we can perhaps force for a little bit, 
for some kind of obedience to an external law that never touches the very desires of our heart. And if that is describing you, you need to repent. You need to repent of this and realize that all of this is very empty and meaningless for you. That it is in a sincere heart and worship to the Lord, a sincere trust in our Savior, and a worship in that truth that is the only thing that is of worship to God. All else is empty. That is why we set before us the standard of that law to as well remind us of what service to the Lord is. But we also receive the grace of our Lord. As every week we read an assurance of pardon, for none of us reach that standard. All of us fall continually, day by day, every moment of the day, to fulfill God's law. And yet, our gracious Lord tells us that we are forgiven. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, he says, our Lord says to us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we turn before you having just heard your words, and as it is so appropriate for us to do in worship, to respond corporately as a body, as a family of believers to what we've just heard, and we thank your, thank you, and we thank your great name, your great power that has done this, has done what the law couldn't do, that we couldn't do, weakened by our sinful flesh, our own guilt, our inability to keep your law and to keep what you created us to do, we failed. We thank you then for this great deliverance, a deliverance that, that cost you all. How can this be? How can an eternal Lord in that way give all to save his people? And we know it was by giving yourself by giving your Son, your eternal Son. And in that way, you could give all of who and what you are to your people to redeem them. It is an amazing gift and a thought we cannot fully comprehend that your great love has, has given us and you have through your great love given to us everything, has given to us what is most dear and precious. And in this way, we pray that we would not doubt that you would give to us everything that we need in this life, whether it be a daily bread, whether it be a daily strength or comfort, whether it would just be the, the ability to continue to put one foot in front of the other, or whether it be the need for you to usher us into glory. These are all in your plan as part of your care for us, and we pray that we would live in a confidence and a trust in your name. And we pray with that knowledge that you would be with the church, that you would be with us, your people. We can pray in confidence that you will be with the work of your missions, that you will spread your church, and we in that thought pray for Reverend Caleb Jansen, church planting in Gig Harbor, Washington. We praise your name and thank you for the families that are joining their church plant. We pray that their regular attending visitors would desire to pursue membership, raise up qualified office bearers, and especially in their need, a deacon for their church, one who would have a desire to serve, have a heart for service, and the accompanying requirements and strengths and gifts to do just that. We pray for our brothers and sisters of the Selma Reformed Presbyterian Church who saw their church building destroyed in a recent tornado. May you bless them as they go through the insurance process, as they seek to recover. We thank you that no one in their congregation was hurt. We pray that you would be with them as they seek to rebuild and, and give them wisdom in how to do that. We pray for those in our church serving in the military, those who are in grave danger and who put themselves out on that line, and we pray that you would protect them. And we also pray that they would be a blessing to those around them, that this would be their mission field, not only as they go and do work for, for their country, 
but especially as they do the work for their true home, the kingdom of the Lord, and that you would bless them. May they be a blessing to the soldiers around them. We pray for Lou Carr as he goes in for surgery tomorrow. Watch over him. Bless the surgery, that it would be a success. Bless the recovery, that he would be safe and it wouldn't be an unduly long or painful recovery. We ask that this would be a blessing to him as well. And we thank you that we can bring before you these prayers. We pray that you'd give to him confidence and peace, that you would, in that way, give him comfort, that he could as well be a witness to those around him. We pray for Trisha Ipema's brother, Kevin Baltima, and his, his battle with cancer. Provide the family peace, the doctor's wisdom. May these treatments prove effective. May you heal him. May you give to his family strength and peace as well in such a very hard and trying time. And along those same lines, we pray for Jack and Trudy Bonima, Kelsey and Zach, as they have received such difficult news. We pray for your protection of their child, that you would give strength and comfort in this very difficult situation, and that you would give to them not only the words to bring to you in prayer, but what they need in this life, and that through it all they would be a witness, and that through it all you would draw them nearer to you. This is our, our prayer, and we know that these, these things we place before you are beyond us. We do not understand how you can work through them, and yet we trust that you can and pray that you would work in that way. We pray for our nation and its leaders who govern and that they would govern in such a way that the church's mission wouldn't be, in thwart, wouldn't be thwarted, but in fact would be aided, that there would be the right situation for the church to be able to freely present the gospel, freely live in a land and let others see the truth of our lives and that they would respond. We pray that our leaders would rule with justice and in accord with what you've revealed to be right, that you would, in that way, save our leaders. We pray for their own heartfelt conversion. This is the, the desire of our hearts, to first see them, to see them turn to you and to see the nation blessed in that way. But we also do pray that if there be leaders who are a threat to your people and a threat to those around them, that you and your great authority and might would remove from office those who would be a danger. And But we pray in all of it we would be good citizens before you, obedient to those you've placed in and above us, but obedient to you first of all. We pray for the unborn and the abortion issue, especially as that becomes more central during this time, as the nation thinks about these things, as there are protests before it. We ask that you would end this, this horrible practice, and that you would, you would let these children live, and that they would be protected. We ask all these things in your great name, knowing that you are able to do exactly what we ask, but we and our prayer as our Savior taught us that your will would be done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Our hymn of preparation is hymn number 401. 401. We'll sing verses 1 through 3 of Holy Spirit of Messiah. Let's stand and sing verses 1 through 3 of 401.
want to reread what we just sang, verses 2 and 3. I think it helps capture what we'll have in the reading today of our text, Jesus in the temple as this 12-year-old child. Verses 2 and 3, what we just sang, New creation's mighty spirit brought to life the promised seed. Virgin Mary, he o'ershadowed, life within her womb conceived. Holy Son of God and sinless, born to set his people free, fully God and fully human, this the Spirit's mystery. Jesus grew in power and wisdom through the Spirit of the Lord. To the sacred scriptures open, grace and truth on him outpoured. Knowing more than all his teachers, Jesus loved his Father's will. All the Spirit's fruit indwelling, perfect man did he fulfill. Especially those last words. All the Spirit's fruit indwelling, perfect man did he fulfill. Now if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. We will read verses 39 to 52. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Lord, we come before you and we come before your word, which is to hear the the word of the Lord, not only as we read it in its truth and perfection, as it's been canonized in sacred scripture, but also your word proclaimed. And we ask, Lord, that you would be with the preaching of your word and that it would be true, accurate, that it would properly explain and interpret the text and apply it to our lives. And Holy Spirit, that you would be with each of us and that the power of your word, you would work in our life to transform us, that we would see in our Savior the true fulfillment of all the Spirit's fruit, the true fulfillment of righteousness, the true fulfillment of humanity. And we ask that we would see this today in your name. Amen. Luke 2, beginning at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Thus ends our reading from God's word. It's not uncommon for a great man to need a great history. It's not uncommon for historians or those who are to prop up a certain king or individual to try to look back into that individual's life and and see a bit of a window. You carve a bit of a window into history itself and you look back upon upon this great person to see what they were like, to see the types of things that they did, how they were already great as a child, or the things that happened to them to make them so great. Scholars say this type of thing happened and occurred. And like Alexander the Great had accounts when he was a child, and, and often even at the age of 12 was the, the years it was looked at to, to peek back into their life. Well, Luke does that here. He gives us the, the ability to open a window and see as we pull back the curtains and look back the corridors of time to see what was Jesus like as this adolescent, as this child, and what does that matter? What does that mean for us, for the gospel, for life itself? 
This is the only gospel account that we have of Christ as a boy. It's significant. It's significant because this is the only information we receive on him in that capacity. It's significant because we see something that's looking forward to his coming ministry. We see something about his very nature, and we see something about his obedience here. All those things in this story, in a story that we can relate to as, as humans. We can relate to as parents of a lost child, of distress and searching, and then this strange scene in the temple as we try to hone in on what's the center meaning of this. Where, where do we see what this text is all about? You can look at verse 49, the first words, by the way, that Jesus speaks in this gospel account. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? could be translated another way, that I must be about my father's business. I think either one of those conveys virtually the same thing, that to be in the father's house, that must being in the father's house conveys that he must be about the father's business. He must be there. He must be pursuing these things. There's this compulsion within him. And that's what's important, as we see of this 12-year-old boy. And we're meant to think of his age. We're meant to think of his youth here and his parents and Mary again. This is uh, multiple times Mary is told in this gospel to be treasuring up these things, to be pondering what she sees, to be astonished at what she sees about her child. And this is one of those events. And we see that as we go through, we see that in the search, the temple dialogue, and their return. We'll just go through the, the details of the text first in the search. Verse 41 describes the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary. They annually traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover. The law required all adult Jewish men to attend these festivals, three festivals, one of them being Passover. But it was not uncommon for them to take their families with them. And you see that. You see their whole community, this whole caravan traveling to do that with their families. And so this again establishes the, the righteousness of both Joseph and Mary, their obedience to the law. Here they are. They're following the law. They annually do this. They travel to the temple, and Jesus is with them. Now, when we read of their, their trip back, you read of them misplacing Jesus, as it were. But before we come down too hard against them, there's reasons why this could have happened. We've observed, or scholars observed in, in later years, if caravan practices, it wasn't uncommon for caravans to travel where the women and children would be at the front of the caravan and the men would be in the back. And we also read that Jesus is 12 years old. Jewish scholars will say that, that the age of 12 was a year of discernment and the age of 13 was that transition into adulthood. At least that's later in the, the history of Judaism. That's what happens at the age of 13. And so it's possible that these were customs that were occurring then. And Jesus, at 12 years old, a, a still a boy, still classified as a, as a young child, but yet on the cusp of this adulthood, it would make sense that if the caravan were traveling in such a way, Joseph would assume that he was up in front with Mary and the other children. And it's possible Mary would have assumed that, that Jesus was back with Joseph and the men. And yet, even if none of that is the case, you could see how a very responsible, we know that Jesus, as a, as a perfect man, as a perfect child, would have been a very responsible and mature boy. There's no way around that. That's what he would have been. It's, it's, not, un, un, it's not crazy to think that his parents, of their very well-behaved 12-year-old, would have assumed that he was with their family and neighbors and their community, and that he was in the caravan as they left. He wasn't so young as to need constant attention and looking after. But then they come together at this, after a day's journey towards their home again, they come together at night, the family would gather together again, and he's not there. And so the frantic search begins. So they've traveled a day away, that's one of the three days. Then they travel back, that's the second of the three days. And then they spend a day searching in Jerusalem. That's likely this three-day search that's described. And they're frantic, searching for him. And this yields this, this activity in the temple, which leads to verses 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple. And then this is the amazing part. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding 
and his answers. So what you see here is him questioning, talking, discussing, and as the the current and, and very popular, still is, way of teaching was to ask questions in return, these teachers would have been answering his questions and posing their own. And he would have been answering and asking in such a way that showed profound astonishment in such a way as to astonish the teachers themselves. That doesn't happen every day. That's very, very rare. That's very rare among us common folk, us common people, to see a pupil so excel to astonish all. And he's likely gathering a bit of a crowd here. And he's at the center of it. And this is where his parents come in and see, here he is. In the middle of the temple precincts, the temple structures, talking to the teachers of the law. Now, some would would argue, some would say, oh, he was correcting them. He was arguing with his teachers. The text doesn't say that, and we don't need to go that far. Rather, well, you see, bookend the text, which, which this is why we began our reading in verse 39. So you see in those verses, and then in verse 52, these the bookends that surround it, he was growing. He was growing in knowledge and stature and wisdom and understanding. And he possessed great strength of knowledge already, astonishing them before him. Jesus was inquisitive. He was interested in the scriptures. He was, ask, he was asking questions. Now, why does that matter to us? Well, that piece of information, coupled with what he says in verse 49, that I must be in my Father's house. Why are you searching for me? I must be here. Of that internal compulsion with that same desire to know and search the scriptures, to talk to the instructors and teachers, shows what he will be and that he's already pursuing it. He's already being nurtured and prepared for his task. And we see already at the age of 12, he has a profound understanding of what that will be. So much so that repeatedly in in the tone of the text, you see that Mary and Joseph don't get it. They're not even aware fully of what he's talking about, even though they've received so much knowledge about their child already. They don't fully understand what all this means. It makes them ponder. It makes Mary treasure these things and mull them over, weigh them in her mind what is going on here. And yet he has an understanding about what he must be doing. This means this whole account is a a prelude. It's a precursor to his ministry itself. We need to understand that Jesus began a ministry at a set time, and we'll get to that in the following chapters. That there was a time when Jesus formally embarks upon his ministry. That's not happening yet. But what we see in this account is that the the foundation and structures, the scaffolding of his ministry is already being laid here. That if he were to misstep as a child, it would blow the whole plan. Now, if he was not aware of a drive and a compulsion of a must, we would be out of luck. We would be without salvation. There would be no way around it. And so we see Jesus in this temple. We see Luke laying the groundwork for what will happen later. And then we see this temple dialogue, this temple dialogue. Joseph and Mary are amazed by what they see as they're his parents and this is where you can, you know, I, I say this in jest, you almost are very sympathetic to Joseph and Mary. It's got to be hard raising a perfect child, right? Especially now when you think, okay, he wasn't even in the, the caravan with us. Jesus, and this is what Mary says, why did you do this? We've been in great distress. So they think they've been wronged, or at the very least, they think Jesus has been thoughtless to them. Why have you gone about this? They're worried sick. That's why, verse 48, Son, why have you treated us so? And after finding him well, Mary rebukes them. And then we get that response. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus was not being disobedient. Jesus was not even being thoughtless, but rather he was being singularly focused. So focused that all else fell away and was unimportant. Evidently, it was so clear to Jesus that he questions why it wasn't clear to his parents. It was so clear to to him where he must be, where he needed to be, that he asked them, why weren't you aware of it? He must certainly be in his father's house about the things of his father. And I want to hone in on that term, must. 
must. That's translating a Greek word, a Greek word that means it is necessary. It is necessary fulfillment. It must be done. That's very significant. There's special importance attached to that word. That word is used throughout the New Testament. That word is used through the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Luke. It's very frequent, and there's much attention attached to it. When that word occurs, something that follows it, the must that must be done is important. That's why it is so necessary. It establishes a divine compulsion that had to be fulfilled. It's already determining his conduct as a boy of 12 years old, staying in the midst of the teachers of the law. You see, the the center of this story is the must. That it is necessary that this 12-year-old boy understands. And I say it that, that way, this 12-year-old boy, because he's already doing these musts, the musts of what, might, what has to occur. He's already aware, in at least some way, of his call, of his purpose. And I don't want us just to stick, just, just to jump over that. Again, it, if our eternal salvation... Okay, if we could just transport ourselves back into that time and place, if we could be little observers on the wall of the temple precincts and know what we do now, we'd be looking at this adolescent, this young kid, and say, our eternal standing rests in his hands. Swerve, sway just a little bit, and we're lost. And yet we see that this this boy is doing all that he should. He is fulfilling those musts that mean so much to us, that the must of our salvation is fulfilled in him. This story is gives us a certainty about the gospel. It gives us a certainty that everything that will follow has been fulfilled. That's what this, this window cut into history shows us. Here's all you need to know, Luke is saying, about this boy's life. And before he'll, he'll again come onto the scene at his baptism, this is what we know. This is the type of child he was. This is his, the insight into his mind. He was doing it. And as the song says, he was fulfilling all of the fruit of the Spirit. He was fulfilling all that must be done in his messianic role. He was fulfilling all that must be done of a human. So it's again significant to us that we see Jesus lived our life. The humanity of Christ is evident here. The human nature of Christ is on full display in this text, that he was a human. He was a boy who was growing in understanding and wisdom. He was gifted. He was determined, focused on his tasks. We also see a contrast as well between what he says of of Joseph and Mary and what he's doing. I must beware. Where must he be? His father's house. That's a special relationship that he's identifying with. I must be in my father's house. That's, that's a bit of a contrast in, compar- in distinction from Joseph and Mary themselves as earthly parents. And so what we see here, too, is that this compulsion, this must of his own messianic identity and office is already showing what we saw last time, a sword that would pierce Mary's heart. Already she's seeing this is his business. And though the, the text ends, he submits, he goes back to Nazareth, he continues to grow, he continues to gain wisdom, he even becomes and takes on the family trade, becoming a tradesman, a carpenter. If this was the purpose, this is truly what he's all about. The sword already pierces their little boy, and, or their, Mary, the sword of Mary is piercing her, that her little boy has this, this role to play that's taking him away from her. That he grows in his understanding. And so this is the temple dialogue. Now we see the return, verses 51 and 52. This is the epilogue to the story. Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
The story reveals Jesus' self-testimony. And the story asks the reader to consider who Jesus is. What is Jesus' sonship? What does that mean? That's very common in the Gospels, to, to produce a question in the reader's mind. Remember, this is Luke producing it for a purpose that, as he said in his beginning of the Gospel, his prologue, this is you would have certainty concerning the things that you were taught of the Gospel and of Christ. This is so you would know what you're believing happened and is real and is true and what you cling to. This is why he writes. And so it produces a question to us, the readers, who is this boy? Just like historians and might, these would be more myths of Alexander the Great and those other great men in history have their, their, their childhood story. Like I said, most of them being myths or fake or, or tall tales. But why are they there? They're there to say how important this one is. They're there to ask the question, who is this person? Well, this story is real. And it happened, and we are to ask that question who is this? We're to do what Mary does and ponder in our heart and treasure up these things about our Lord and Savior. And what we see, who is this one? We see he is the Messiah who already has that understanding himself, that he must be about the business. What is the answer to our pondering? Here it's to marvel, it's to pay attention to him and what would come. It's to see that at every point of his life, he was our faithful Messiah. At every point of his life, he was doing what needed to be done to fulfill all righteousness. We see his obedience. He submits. And in that submission, we see a humiliation. We see that he, as the Lord of all, was content, was willing to come down and empty himself in that way, taking on a servant and submitting to the law, and submitting to his parents, and submitting to fallible parents, parents that didn't even understand what he was called to do. Parents that would have at times accused him falsely of things he didn't do, of thoughts he hadn't done. And yet he submits and increases in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. This is Jesus' humanity. This is, these verses emphasize his full humanity. He didn't come into the world with a brain fully programmed, he wasn't a divine robot. He was a boy. He was a child, just like we all were, just like some of you are right now. And he had to grow. Isn't that amazing to think? That the eternal Lord himself in, in these verses we see was growing in wisdom and understanding. The, the one who possesses all wisdom as a man had to grow in wisdom. Do you see the mystery there? You see the humanity on display, and we can't just skip past it. And why? Because if he was just this divine robot, what sort of high priest would he be for us? That's Hebrews' point. The book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show us that he was born as a man, born in every way like us, experienced everything we experience, from adolescence to adulthood, all of that, and he did it in such a way and for the purpose that he could be not only our representative and sacrifice, but that he could be our faithful priest and interceder, our mediator. He knows all of, all of life's experiences. He fulfilled it all. That's why this is important. And that's why we can't just swallow up his humanity in his deity. That's why texts like these are important for us to understand. The danger in church history has been to go to extremes in Christ, to highlight one of his natures over the other. The Gospel of Thomas, that is a heretical gospel, it's not a true gospel, but it talks about Jesus as this wonder boy who was walking around and just, even before he took on an earthly ministry, was just performing these miracles, doing these wondrous things, and, and everyone was astonished at who this boy was. But that's not the true biblical interpretation. What is highlighted is his humanity. And then modern scholars go to the opposite extreme, and they just want to say he was just a man. He was just a revolutionary. He just garnered support. He tricked a lot of people. That's not the case either. No, as Hebrews says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Okay, I want to highlight this. Pay attention to this. This is, this is beautiful. So beautiful that we read of, a, of our 12-year-old Savior here, and why? So that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's Hebrews 2.17. So what's at the heart of this narrative? The merciful love of the Lord, so that he would provide one not only to be able to make propitiation. We'll hear about more about that tonight, by the way. But not only so he could make propitiation, not only so he could appease God's wrath, but that he could be one who would be merciful in doing so. It was, it was fulfilling both of those things. That he lived this life that we live, and he did it in such a way that he was worthy to sacrifice himself and be our high priest. And in this he understands and sympathizes with our weakness, having experienced all of life. Our Lord is able to sympathize with man in every stage. You see, in God's design, what he's plainly doing is to show how truly and completely Christ took on our flesh, how he fulfilled it all, and how there was a must in his obedience. That he was obedient to himself, a compulsion that drove him that he wouldn't deny but fulfill, and that was so clear and obvious to him that he wouldn't attend the caravan back home and would have assumed his parents knew why. He had come to be in his father's house and about his father's business, and his father's business, his business, was one of atonement. And he grows in knowledge and understanding. Our Savior experienced weariness, hunger, and thirst. Normal human emotions, normal human growth. He was horrified at the prospect of death. He engaged in regular relations with his family. He aged. He had to trust and obey God. He had to search the scriptures and know it and had to put work in to do so. That's what he's doing right now. He underwent temptation and suffering. He underwent dying and burial. He ate and drank. He grew from infancy to maturity. He progressed in understanding. He went to school, as it were. Boys and girls, that's what your Savior did. And did it faithfully. For you, for us. But we still question how the, the Son, the eternal wisdom of the Father, how he could increase in wisdom. And here's where we have to understand that not everything said in Scripture about Christ to his entire, is referring to his entire person. So when it's talking about these things and his growth in wisdom and understanding, his aging, his pain, his suffering, all these things, it is meaning in his human nature that is united to the divine nature in the one person of Christ. Again, we'll talk about that much more tonight in Lord's Day 6, as it literally deals with these topics of these two natures. But that's what we see on display here, and especially his humanity. And the text ends that Jesus increased in favor with God and man. Increased in favor. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that God's plan... What was necessary to fulfill would be to place before him finally one who would be God's favored one. Finally a man, finally a human who would walk this way and obey perfectly and completely. One to whom God would say even at his baptism, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. It couldn't be said truly about anyone else. One who grew in favor with the Lord, and that's the whole point. He came to do it, to do what none of us could, to grow in the favor of the Lord, and in God's plan it would be to strike down the one that gave him the most favor. The one that he was and is most beloved of the Lord. That was his plan, and it's occurring now. And we need to see that process, not just the end result. Jesus' life and ministry wasn't just him hanging on the cross. He didn't just assume human nature, plop down and be crucified. He lived a life, and that was a reason. There was a process, whole humanity living out. And so this account gives us something. It establishes a life worthy of atonement, and we see that in him, but it does something for us too. This account gives us assurance. We saw this several weeks ago when we looked at what happened, that Jesus was fulfilling the law, and the same thing is present here. It gives us assurance that he has fulfilled all on our behalf. That's what this window in history shows. He was faithful in all respects, so we're assured. It gives us, it gives us thanksgiving to see what the Lord is doing and working in salvation. 
It gives us the knowledge of Jesus' own understanding of what he must perform. And what is astonishing to me, what was going, in the, going around in the mind of our Savior at 12 years old, that he knew it was necessary to do these things. Our redemption arises from the must of Jesus' life, and so we see God's love here. We find assurance that Jesus is our perfect high priest, and we're encouraged through this that he kept it. It was necessary. He did it. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we see this account and are in awe of your plan. We're in awe of the one who we see grow in favor and grow in wisdom, who lived the life that we were supposed to live but couldn't, who did it so perfectly where there was nothing lacking who was so singularly devoted to his tasks, who you had so blessed and poured your spirit upon that he would astonish the adult teachers of Israel, who he would become the true rabbi, the true teacher. And as the young child is able to show his understanding, and even more than that, to show his devotion to his call. And we thank you for... The, the proof of that in your word that we see and we pray that we would then have an assurance of our own salvation and as well that we would be all the more quick to turn to our faithful high priest in prayer. He knows everything that we have gone through. He's lived it. He's been tempted in every way beyond anything we have been. He's experienced life to its fullest. He's experienced the worst of sufferings. He's experienced the joys of life. He knows all. And so we thank you for raising up the perfect mediator. We ask this and praise your name.